to be a leader to me means that you are more present. You're present like you and I are present with each other. When you're a leader, you're, you're present with the people you're trying to lead somewhere, not lost in your own fantasies. And so it's a quality of presence, but then it's also a quality of a connectedness. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Robert Gass, a longtime coach of key progressive leaders and a co-founder of the Rockwood Leadership Institute and the Social Transformation Project. I've heard about Rockwood from quite a number of guests on the show over the years, and I was very curious to hear the story of how Robert came to start that group a couple decades ago, which has helped numerous progressives run their organizations. We did the interview in person in my hometown of Boulder, Colorado. If you're interested in better leadership for the progressive movement, you should definitely listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Robert Gass of the Rockwood Leadership Institute. What do Blue State, Sierra Club, and Indivisible have in common? They all use Civic Shout to grow email lists that raise money like clockwork. And now, so can you. Instead of vaporizing money with Facebook ads or burning bridges with spam, a new wave of digital directors are helping Democrats and nonprofits acquire opt-ins and nail their monthly goals with Civic Shout. Environmental Action called Civic Shout a wildly better way to grow your email list. And Clarify Agency saw a 200% return on ad spend in just two months. Head to civicshout.com forward slash partners to learn more and schedule a demo. That's civicshout.com forward slash partners. Robert, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Well, at 75, the biography tends to be not quite as uh, quick. I came of age in the late 60s and uh, was a student radical. <laughs> Went from college to becoming a full-time rock musician and then came back and started working uh, one of those kind of runaway houses with street people in Boston. It was a work collective. It's like I, I get very interested in kind of the politics of how you kind of run a collective organization. Ended up kind of training other places like that around the around New England. Went back and got a, my graduate degree and a program at Harvard around trying to look at the clinical psychology about how do you apply those principles to change the institutions of society. Ended up getting involved in the hospice movement and was mentored by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and opened a hospice and worked in hospice for a while. Very quickly kind of got involved in leadership, both leadership and organizations, and really was always for how to make a better world, how to make a more just world. I very quickly kind of discovered that um, if we don't change how people are, we're going to keep recreating the same problems uh, we've had. Um, and so I went back and forth in my career from thinking, you know, we have to work on how we help people become better human beings, how they treat other people. And then we're never going to get there doing that. Like we have to change because we're subject to these enormous systems and pressures and it's not enough to change people. We have to change systems. So literally about every 10 years, I would go back and forth from one to the other, back and forth. I tell say kind of later in my career, okay, how do we do both? Uh, and that's really the last 
probably the last 35 or so years, have really focused on how do we do both. I've brought this kind of work to different parts of society, but the last 25, 30 years, which I think where you and I are talking, my focus really has been on how do I help the people and the organizations that are trying to change society, that progressive sector? How do I help the leaders become more effective? How do I help the institutions, the organizations become more effective at actually doing what they're trying to do? And how do I help movements do that? Well, we definitely have an intersection of interests because I ran a organization in what you call the progressive sector for a while, a software company to help Democrats, and learned a lot about what kind of growth you need as an organization scales to run it. And then through this podcast, I've been interviewing a lot of people who are working hard on that, many of whom have either attended the Rockwood Leadership Institute that you started or talked to you personally. So glad to have the chance to talk more to you today. Me too. So I'm going to ask you some questions just about that biography, just to flush that out sure. a little bit. Student radical, you said. Yeah. Uh, what did that mean then? What did that mean is I came out of a uh, nice suburb thinking the world was great. Well, Newton, Massachusetts. I went to right. Newton South. Right. You know, and I went to Harvard and I was not socially Harvard oriented. was undergrad for you as well? Yeah, yeah. I was not socially oriented at all. It's just all of a sudden it's, wait a minute. I thought our country was good. I thought our leaders were good. And I, I looked at the war and was horrified. And so joined SDS. Students for a Democratic Society? Yeah, yeah, that was the student radical. Learned a lot politically, but boy, that's the first time I saw it. I remember we factionalized. There were several f fights broke out between the new left faction and the more socialist faction. And I remember there was I was at a meeting and literally people were pushing each other, screaming at each other. And all of a sudden I felt like I was 50 feet above looking down saying, this is not revolutionary. What would we do if we got the power? I felt like we wouldn't do anything better. I was really quite concerned. And so, yes, I was very agitated by what I saw was wrong in society. But that was the first instinct that has like, wow, people are going to have to change if we're going to change society. What did you study as undergraduate? Honestly, mm -hmm. SDS and LSD. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what was your official major? Let's see. Uh, over the time I was there, I was a music major, partly because I was also a musician. Mm -hmm. I was a history major. I was a social relations major. And then gracefully, general studies. So I got to graduate in general studies because I never would have completed anything. What instruments did you play? Or uh, My native instrument, I was a class, trained as a classical piano player, which became a, a rock organ player. I now play guitar and some other things too, but pianos, keyboard's really my best instrument. So it sounds like you were more interested in what was going on in the outside world than necessarily in the classroom for a while. That would be totally fair. Yeah. And also the inner exploration. I mean, I had no spiritual background of any kind and I had a, I took LSD mostly just out of curiosity and had a, a spiritual experience, which literally I remember thinking my life will never be the same from that. So there was like an outer exploration and an inner exploration and not so much in the classroom, but it was an incredible education nonetheless. What did your parents do? My father was a, a shoe manufacturer and my mother had a Broadway actress who gave up the stage to uh, have children and then taught dramatics. Were they political? No. And did you have siblings? Yes, two younger sisters. Yeah. Are they still in your life? Um, one died recently and the, the other, yes. So... You come out of Harvard after 
majoring in a lot of things, as it seems. And you have all of that experience in, what, what did you call it, runaway house? Yeah, it was one of these things that happened in the late 60s. A lot of children were running away, so it, it was like drug treatment drop-in center, a house for runaways to be safe, with a little bit of community organizing kind of mixed in. It was, it was in the south end of Boston. Did you feel like, like a lot of kids nowadays, uh, they've gotten so vocationally interested about college and and rather than maybe so much about the education did you feel when you were out of harvard that i'm not on the right path doing this that i'm not on my way to being a lawyer or a doctor <laughs> or okay. having a named career okay so i came out of harvard and i decided i'm going to go to law school so i took the law exams and things and then i decided i didn't want to be a lawyer and then i decided i was going to be a doctor so i went back and took my pre-meds I wanted to work with people. It all came out of the feeling from being a radical, like, okay, people have to change. So I think maybe psychiatry or something. So I took my pre-med course and I was literally listening to Imagine, John Lennon. I was, I'm with my wife up in a cabin in New Hampshire. And all of a sudden I tried to imagine if I spend seven or eight years in that machine being trained to be a doctor, I said, I won't know who I am anymore. And that's not what I want to be. And I was listening to the song and I said, no, I'm going for the dream. I'm not going to go. To, I'm, I'm not going to go. I don't know where I'm going to go, but I'm not going any of those routes. So I became a full-time rock musician, actually, for the next two years. I've seen that that was a big part of your life. If you look at your Wikipedia entry, for example, <laughs> it's much more about music than yeah. about the leadership and politics. Tell me about that thread in your life and and why was it important to you? Well, looking back on it, because again, I've also been very involved in the world of meditation and spirituality with politics my whole adult life. Looking back on it, when I was young, I was having the kind of experience I now would think of as mystical experiences, playing the piano. I would sit there for hours, just sort of lost in this other world. My mother died very painfully of cancer for about a four-year period. And so those years, I remember just singing at the piano, just like, kind of like taking all of that grief and fear and just pouring into the music. What I really loved about the band was, I, mean, I loved performing, but I loved it when we would come back and play in the banks of the Charles River and everyone knew our music and there were kind of these uh, communal experiences that the music was. Is this a band that started in college? Yeah, we were actually, we were actually a Harvard band mm -hmm. and then went professional and got record contracts and movie contracts and went out, played the Fillmore and sort of did that world for a few years. It was an expression of that kind of communal spirit. It's like, which I would feel the same thing, a demonstration. Like all of a sudden, we're not alone, we're connected. It's like this huge pod, this huge family of humanity. And I would feel it through music. And then, of course, later I discovered um, spiritual music chanting. That became a strong expression in my life. And again, it was not for entertainment. It was the fact that people would, as they did in all traditional societies, people sang together. They felt their common spirit. They felt they belonged to each other, to something larger than themselves. You see that in all religions. That's really what the chanting was for me too. So, uh, yeah, I've always had a thread up until maybe 15 years ago. Like I did, I know it's hard to believe it was all the same to me. I felt like that who I was and expressing through the music was exactly what I was trying to express through the work I would do with leaders and organizations, which I mean, it's funny because I could be teaching strategy, but also I was always trying to teach people a sense of belonging, of how to come not from a kind of almost the ego-driven kind of fear that you, all of us human beings are quite prone to do, 
to find a place of greater stability and heartfulness, caring, compassion inside of ourselves, and the ability to join with other human beings in a common cause for the purpose of doing something good for humanity. So the music was one expression, the leadership and political work was another one, and they were the same for me. I think I can have that sort of heightened sense alone in the woods or like at the women's march. I think I felt that. Or even just cooking with family. Like there's sometimes just just something, it's when you're very present, I think. I think that's a good word. I think there are two qualities to it. One is a quality of presence. It's like, if I'm honest, a certain amount of time it's like I'm asleep. I'm doing all the things people do. And then all of a sudden, some of them I feel like I'm more present, more awake. I'm like, yeah. And so to be a leader to me means that you are more present. You're present like you and I are present with each other. When you're a leader, you're, you're present with the people you're trying to lead somewhere, not lost in your own fantasies. And so it's a quality of presence. But then it's also a quality of a connectedness. A lot of the time, it's like I'm Robert. I have like a shell around me and you have a shell around you. And there's almost a quality of anxiety or, you know, protection around ourselves. And so I feel what happens in wanting to create in a, in a team or an organization or in a movement or in a family around the, the dinner table, it's like we soften, we relax, we relax that, that kind of protective shell. We're kind of safe because we were, you know, we were herd animals. We wanted to be part of the tribe. It's a strong longing in people, both to connect with other people, but almost just to connect with life. Yeah. And there's many, many expressions. And I believe that longing, I, I believe that's in everybody. And people find their own way uh, of doing that. And I think even people find that connectedness or that belonging in movements that are bad as well as movements that are good. Yeah, particularly when we're, when there's fear, we, we seek for people that are like us. We cling to them. And so, yes, that's we're at a time right now there's a lot of fear in society. And one of its manifestations is, yes, it's kind of a tribalism. It's people seeking that sense of safety with each other. And unfortunately, it's also we're safe and we project others are not. It's, it's like, uh, like us and other. It's tearing our country apart, actually. Yeah, it is. Not just our country. Yeah. And yes, obviously, from, from my perspective, in terms of what I like to see, some of the places that people are gathering are, are frightening uh, because of the degree of othering and violence against those that are perceived as other. So after not pursuing law and not pursuing <laughs> medicine, what made you turn and go to a PhD program and study clinical psychology? I was already doing it. By the time I went back to college, I was actually leading trainings. I was actually doing the work I'm doing now. I was training leaders, not big political leaders, but kind of community leaders. I was doing consulting to work collectives and communes that wanted to experiment with collective ways of decision. So I was actually doing that work. And I felt like to take it to the next level, it might be useful for me to find a very a very unusual program. It was a very politically radical program that was designed to like, how do we take the principles of individual change to change society? They gave me a year and a half credit for what I was already doing. It was a very easy program. And, you know, I pretty quickly found like, okay, it was limited what I could learn there. I got trained as a therapist, which was useful. That was probably the most useful thing. And I had one class called Liberating Organizational Structures. That was great. So I learned a few things. Then we had a choice of getting a PhD or an EDD. And obviously everyone... Out of 80 people, everyone went for the PhD except for me. 
the choice was I had to do a research project to get the PhD, and had already decided and had much to learn there. And for the EDD, you just had to do a project. So I met Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and opened a, opened a hospice. And, I, and, 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 and so I just had to write about that. So I never had to do a research paper. So tell me about that choice to do a hospice and what you learned there. I mean, I've had some you know, firsthand run-in with hospice. I've had those conversations. And it seems to me like it's filling a really important role in society, hospice. But that seems like a pretty non-random choice about things to do. Why? Why did I choose that? Yeah, why did you choose that and what did you learn? Honestly? Yeah. Okay. Was it because um, your mom had been sick? And No. No, I had a lot unusual amount of contact with death, I would say. Yeah. It was, I was looking for a topic. Yeah, <laughs> as, my, as we my, all are in that phase. No, for my thesis. I, I, I never wrote my thesis. I had, I, to, do, I had to do something. <laughs> so I was on the MTA in Boston, the subway, and it stopped short, and a young woman knocked into me. We knocked us down to the ground, mm-hmm. picked her up, started talking to her, asked, what do you do? She said, oh, I'm a, I'm a doctor and I'm working with children in a cancer clinic. Many of them are dying. And I was like, oh my God, that sounds really depressing. She said, no, no. I mean, and she was just full of life. I remember her and it made a real impression on me. Mm-hmm. And that night I was looking at a newspaper and I saw um, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross speaking in Fall River. I just because of having met her, I said, I'm going to go talk to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Let me go hear her talk. So I got in my car, drove to Fall River. I was late. I was in the back of the auditorium. It was a, like a school auditorium, terrible acoustics. She has a very Swiss accent. I didn't understand half of what she said. I worked, I've always followed instinct a lot. And I had a strong instinct I should go up and meet her. There was about 100 people in line wanting to sign books. I walked right up to her and said, Elizabeth, I think I'm supposed to work with you. She thought much, looked at me and said, Literally said, oh, yes, they've sent you. Here's my personal phone number. Give me a call. So I called her. and Well, actually, I was also a musician. I started playing music at her workshops for a couple of times. And then I got interested. And then I needed a a placement for my, I decided that was my project topic and got involved. And we'd we'd already moved out to, uh, I was living in a commune that we helped to start out in uh, rural Massachusetts and went to the local hospital and and volunteered to work in their uh, oncology clinic. And then I said, you need a hospice program, and I started a hospice program. And For people who don't know Kubler-Ross, who is that? Oh, well, you know, back in the, back, we're like back in the early 70s now. I mean, there was no such thing as hospice, and peop, it was pretty brutal. People didn't talk about death, and doctors wouldn't tell patients if they had a terminal illness. Death was just a forbidden topic. So really, she was a Swiss psychiatrist, and this was her life mission. And almost single-handedly, she birthed this thing, like the hospice movement. She and one or two other people, but she was really the popularizer. Um, had this best-selling book on death and dying. I uh, went around the country training doctors and nurses. It was a very different time. In, in a sense, she helped to see what I would call a social revolution. It's hard to believe now, but you know, people would die alone in hospitals and no one would told them they were dying and people didn't talk about it. And, you know, there were there were six doctors and six surgeons at the hospital I worked at. Not one of them could deal directly with the topic of death. So they would do the medical part, then walk out and let me deal with what just happened. So what was the path that you took that kind of united the student <laughs> radical with the leadership thread? I have no idea, really. But they all sort of did weave together. It happened to happen. Well, for me, the political is kind of looking at the structures of society 
and the personal is looking from the inside, inside of, up from the human beings. So trying to do work in the hospital, to, to open a hospice program, yes, with the patients, I was doing something that was very deeply personal, but to create a space in the hospital to do that was a, was a political struggle. I had to deal with a very rigid organization which had various kind of certain kind of concerns and I created a volunteer program and then got attacked by a, a someone because I was doing de demon worship from the radical right. I was always interested in both, I guess is what I can say. Mm -hmm. My attention was always to like, how do I serve and help human beings be the best they can be? And how do I deal with the institutions of society that are repressive, that don't support justice and don't support the well-being of human beings? So my attention was always there, whatever I was doing. It's sort of like I would be leaning more one way than the other, but I never lost track of the other. And so out of the hospice program, well, then I also created a workshop called Opening the Heart, which is more kind of a psychosocial workshop. And we created a center for Opening the Heart. I designed the program. I trained other people to do it. And quite a lot of people came and did these intensive programs. But then people from institutions would come for these human development and say, well, can you bring this to our organization? in some way. We'd like an organization that's more heart-centered. So I'd go to start working with their organizations. Or I did the work in the hospice, but soon I was training other hospitals to open hospices, which meant dealing with the hospital bureaucracy and the board of directors. I guess it was just my attention was equally on both. So whatever I was doing, I was looking at how do we liberate human beings and how do we create institutions or dismantle them if we have to. So we go back and forth, and then there was a period of time, and for a while it's kind of out in the personal development, kind of human growth circuit, teaching a place like Esalen and Esalen teaching. My wife and I would do couples retreats. I would do workshops on uh, more on personal development, but then I would also be going to organizations and trying to work with the organizations and leadership. Then I took a about a seven-year stint where I was, it was at first a client of mine, I then became president of a consulting company. They were actually working with global corporations. My political thought was like, wow, there's a lot of money and power locked up in those organizations. If they could be liberated, that would be a good thing. And started developing methodologies for how do you transform a 100,000-person organization operating on all continents? How do you liberate the human spirit? How do you change their compensation systems? How do you change their strategy? How do you do all of that? Learned a lot, did that for a period of time, then stopped. What I discovered was that the work we did was incredibly good for the human beings that worked in these places, but that didn't touch the system they were in. Uh, what I saw was that even when you had a relatively enlightened CEO, they were accountable to a board of directors, and the board of directors were accountable to their stockholders. It, it was like that the corporations were locked into a, a very powerful system of, of greed, and it was really limited what you could do. You could do really good things for the human beings that worked there. We went into a, it was Chase Bank in those days, and um, they needed to have a pretty dramatic culture change. They, were, they couldn't compete with Japanese banks. They had no service orientation of any kind. They knew it. They engaged us in a rather large way to try to change their culture to make it more customer-serviced. And so we did things that were very satisfying to me on a number of levels. They created a set of values. They created the first, we created from the first 360 where everyone evaluated their own managers. Like, were they being treated well? Were they being treated with respect? And 50% of the managers' bonuses were based on what their employees said about them, which got their attention. 
they kept saying we want everyone to act like owners. I said, well, they should. so they created the first stock plan for everybody after six months, including all the way down to people in the back rooms. You could see it was really good for the human beings that worked there, but at the end of the day, they were still wreaking havoc in the world and that wasn't going to change. Even if they wanted to, they couldn't change. And it wasn't sort of my tribe anyway. So I did that for a few years, but learned a lot. And then why we're here today. Well, then, then I went back. There was no field called coaching, but I was also looking for a way we didn't have to travel so much because we still had three kids. So I kind of looked at, well, athletes have coaches, why not leaders? So I started, just started calling myself a coach. That was you know quite a while ago still. I had an interesting clientele, I'd say about, I wasn't so much into working with corporate leaders, but it was much more interesting to work with entrepreneurs who own businesses. I was choosing ones that did things I liked, but also they had more power to make change. They weren't accountable to a board of directors in the same way. About a third of them were nonprofit leaders, and about a third of them were spiritual teachers, people who came from the world of spirit who all of a sudden became um, well-known, best-selling authors, having to deal with power and money and women and would kind of help coach them personally how to operate in the world and, and help their organization. So it's a kind of very interesting group of people. Is there a common thread among these people that you were coaching that that was what you would focus in on helping them with? Was it sort of self-management? Was it self-knowledge? What No, it's a great, great, great question. So I developed a model back when I was doing the corporate work um, that I called the Wheel of Change. And that's still what I work with. And, and it, well, yeah, it actually fits what you're saying. Oh, like, how could I do these different things? It's, it's like what really creates change? Um, and, you know, you can slice or dice it about 10,000 ways or tons of models. I tried to find what's the most simple one that's useful. Because also I always look towards not what I can do, but what can I teach other people to do? And so to me, it still seems like, okay, if you want to make change that involves human beings in any way, regardless of whether it's coaching, like an individual, team building, building an organization, or building a social change movement that essentially, again, they're just different lenses in reality. One thing is like hearts and minds. You're dealing with human beings. What's going on inside of people? Their belief systems, their emotions, their values. It's like if those don't change, nothing that human beings do is going to change. That's where we're coming from. But if those change and people's behavior doesn't change. It doesn't stick. They may feel differently, but nothing's going to change out here unless actually the choices they make change. But we human beings were incredibly vulnerable and impacted by the systems in which we're operating, in which we live and work. And so yeah, that's what I found in the consulting company I became head of. They hired me originally because they had a training like the S training, but it was a different one. It was called, it was called LifeSpring. And um, they were going into companies and training thousands and thousands of people about being self-responsible, living your dreams. And they said, we want you to come because after six months, it seems to be wearing off. We want you to do a follow-up training. So I interviewed their trainers, their clients, and I said, I think your theory of change is wrong. You're trying to change individuals. You tell them that they have power and they can do what they want. And they come back to the system. They don't have any power in the system. And so after six months, either they sort of give up and get depressed or they quit. In order to change them, you'd have to change the system that they live in every day. They said, that sounds good. How do we do that? I said, let's give it a try. So most people that want to do change are focusing on one of those dimensions. 
like psychology or psychiatry, and that's always been in a lot of the human potential movements, always been about let's change the way people feel, the way they believe, which is great. But people, then they go out in the world, if you change the way they feel, but don't change the way they behave, their life doesn't change. It has to translate into behavior. And a lot of times, behavior changes attitude. The direction is often the other way, right? Yeah, the wheel of change. It's like it's, it's like it's, it's like a track. It, it, yeah. it can go both ways, yeah. but people only focus on behavior. Like so much in managed care now, we have like six or eight sessions. If you change the behavior, that can impact the way you feel. But if it doesn't de deal with some of the deeper motivations, the behavior tends to wear off. And then, yeah, politics, particularly unskillful politics, <laughs> typically is focused on let's change the externals of things. So is this what you were doing when you decided to co-found Rockwood Leadership Institute, or is oh, there more to the story? That we're, I... get, we're getting right there. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. so when you ask me what if I was trying to change, I was always trying to change all of those. Yeah. No matter what people would bring me, if they wanted to make real change, we'd be looking at what's the change in you, what's the change in your behavior, what's the change in the systems and structures mm -hmm. that you're operating and living inside of. And so I was kind of doing that coaching kind of thing for, you know, seven or eight years. And then I was walking on the hill behind the house here. That you can kind of see out there, right there. Yeah, we are in, here in Boulder, Colorado. I've walked <laughs> over six blocks from my brother's house to Robert's house. That's really nice. It's yeah. really nice, by the way, just to be hanging out with you in person after a lot of time on Zoom here. Yes. Um, so again, you know, I have always worked in a sense of kind of inspiration or intuition whatever you want to call it. I was walking up the hill there and had a fantasy. Well, you met my two grandchildren upstairs. I did not have grandchildren then. But in my fantasy, in my imagination, I had a grandson who was saying, Grandfather, what were you doing when my world was going to hell? I've heard Literally. a lot of people say that recently. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, in my mind, I'm answering, like, well, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm coaching this person. Yeah. And I could feel myself like, no, I'm not meeting not what's needed here. Yeah. And then I had a very, very clear image, which I... I'll never forget it. It was like I was being handed a bowl of fruit. And the bowl of fruit was like, this is what life has placed in you. The education you've had, the teachers and mentors that you've had, the experience you've had, the, whatever you, knowledge you've acquired, it's like this. And it was like, give it to the rainbow warriors. Hmm. I didn't even know what a rainbow warrior was, but that, it was like, give it to the people who are serving the earth and its people. Just, and it was like, give it all away while you're alive. I actually had already had one potentially fatal cancer at that point, so I did not take life for you know longevity being at all assumed. It was like, while you're alive, give it all back, whatever you've been given, and give it specifically to the Rainbow Warriors and the people who are working for the Earth and Justice. As has often been the case, when I've had an intuition like that, life answered pretty quickly. So within weeks, I was invited to present at a gathering called Leading with Spirit. Sourcing like kind of like right up my alley, people doing social change work who were interested, kind of in their inner life in some way. And in that workshop, I did one of the exercises that we do now in Rockwood that I first did back in the corporate work, where people stand up for two minutes and they give their vision. It's called vision stand up, what they want to create in the world. And one of the people was a man named Andrew Carruthers, and he gives his vision stand as he'd been an activist for a long time, and he'd studied organizational development. And his vision was, we need to bring this organizational development work into the progressive movement, in, in, into social justice, into environmental leaders. And that was his vision stand. And I kind of went like, click, click, said, Andre, let's talk. So he had a small family foundation called the Rockwood Fund. 
you know, small, but he decided to, okay, let's, let's, let's run a training for mostly for environmentalists. And so he said, let me invite some of my colleagues and you create one of your, do your thing. You yeah. know? Um, so this was at least 25 years ago, I think mm. people weren't interested. <laughs> like, <laughs> it wasn't like it is now, mm -hmm. you know, there was no appetite for this. In fact, People had an attitude, I would say. Overall, the attitude was, first, we don't have time for it. Second, it's navel-gazing. Mm -hmm. It's real work to do, and it's almost like self-indulgent yeah. to do that kind of thing. Yep. I'm sure he did not charge, I don't think he charged people for it. Somehow, he got 25 people or so people in the room. I don't know how he did it, because it was not an easy sell. Yep. It was a four-day retreat, and I designed it, you know, based on things I've been developing my whole life. And I said, let's call it the art of leadership. Great. We did it. I think he was, in particular, was a little nervous, like, how is this going to go? I mm -hmm. was nervous. And it went really well. Mm. The approach I took was, I mean, to be honest, my inner thing was, I want to train spiritual warriors. And it went, it went really well. And people kind of said, we need more of this. Okay, so we, we hadn't decided to start an organization, but let, let's do a couple more of them. But I got on pretty quickly a couple things. I, I think there's a real need here. I want to create something that's replicable. That's not dependent on me and my particular life experience or capacities. I want to create something that's replicable. And as we started doing this, I'd been kind of like going in and out of this ecosystem, kind of the previous thirty years. But this was I was getting like getting to know folks more and know the the scene more. It's like wow, it was a very poignant feeling. It was like oh my god, these human beings and they're so dedicated and their hearts in such the right place and they're so brilliant. And I'm looking at the energy going into what they're doing and the actual results coming out the other end. And I identified four things that I felt if, if we could change this in the ecosystem and through these trainings or whatever we could do, it would really help the brilliance and power that's trying to manifest actually have the impact they would like it to have. Yeah. And there were four things. If you look back, you can see where they came from. One is to create things, we want to be leading from what we want to create. And so much of the left was grounded in a feeling of what we're against, which is fine. I mean, it's good to know what you're against and anger is fine. All that's fine. But to actually create something, you need a vision. There needs to be hope. There needs to be a sense of direction, a possibility. And so I remember that's this training has to help people move from what we're against to what we're for, to vision. I know that makes great leaders and that's what makes great movements. Okay, the second thing we need to shift. I put it really bluntly, too much ego, not enough orientation towards partnership and collaboration. And it's hindering abilities, people's ability to work together in teams, to work together in different functions in an organization, to work together in the same social movement with each other, and to work cross movements, which should be collaboration. It's like, wow, these collaborative skills really need to be up-leveled in the people we're working with. The third was... For whatever it's worth, the people in the corporate where I worked, they know how to do things. Like if you're in a competitive business and you're not productive and actually get results, you're not going to be in business. Yeah. And what I started seeing was like, okay, there was not a sharpness in how do we actually create results. Incredible activity. It's like pouring people, pouring their life force into things. But the activity isn't producing necessarily good results. That can be taught. You know, someone's a manager, like that bank I you know, worked with. I mean, by the time they're a senior manager, they've, the people have invested in them. They know they've been trained how to manage people well. So I said, okay, we got to take what, what's useful and the best of that and help train people just simply in how, you, how to make organizations work better. Then the fourth thing was very poignant to me. We're working mostly with environmentalists, sustainability, sustain, the way people worked. Oh, my God. 
I mean, it's still not great, but back then, there was not even the concept that that was desirable. I literally felt like people were coming and bragging about how stressed they were, that that was some badge of courage. If I hadn't slept, if I'd ruined my life, you know, my health, that was like noble somehow. It was just unsustainable. I didn't go for like having balanced lives or having a better human being or be more, what is it like, okay, I want to teach people how to be better leaders and to get more real results. I, I knew from my work that it's possible that you can have more real results with less effort to enjoy your life more and to be someone that other people would want to be around. That That's not a zero-sum game. And it was sort of set up, I felt in the movement, like it's, it's like we sacrifice our lives and our families and everything for the movement. I sacrifice my health. And, and I, I know that's not necessary. And the way I positioned everything was is around leadership. And like these practices that you're doing may seem pretty weird because back in the days, the stuff, it's not weird anymore. The stuff that the art of leadership does, it's, but no one else was doing that in those days. And it was like, pretty weird to people. But I kept focusing on this is why we're doing it. This is the results. This is what will help you to be a better leader by doing it. In terms of sustainability, the word I, I used was personal ecology. And why you want to do it is because when you're running around like a mad person, you're not going to be a good leader. You know, a good leader is supposed to be thinking years into the future, uh, particularly if you're a senior leader. Too many think about how to get through the week. So it's like, what I found was that I loved working with activists, what I found, and I still do. What, what I found was that because most activists, their dedication is already strong. They're so dedicated, whether it's gay right, whatever it is. And so if you can show them, demonstrate to them that they can do something that will help them actually do that better, and they're already committed, they're on board. So I found that their commitment to do what we might call inner work when it could be demonstrably linked to the success of the outer work that they were committed, they were great. They would seize it, they would study, they would they would take it quite seriously. It was, it was quite exciting to see, actually, and exciting for them, obviously, too. It's like, because it just mushroomed, I mean, beyond what I could have expected. You know, within a couple of years, we were selling trainings out, and there was a huge appetite that was not there. So I want to ask you about Rockwood as an organization and as a kind of an act of entrepreneurship in putting that together. So I've gotten a sense of kind of what you were trying to do and, and a little bit of a sense of who you were starting to aim your services at, but you list yourself as a co-founder is Andre, Andre, Andre is, yeah, the, is the other person who is a co-founder. Yeah. Tell me about like getting this thing off the ground at the beginning and any organization like that, there's sort of what you do and what, you get paid for, compensated for, and there's also what it takes to make all that happen, which is part of it as well. So help me understand how that all came together. Well, I would say we were really a, a well-suited partnership at the beginning. Andre had a deeper understanding and connection with the social change movement than I did. Mm -hmm. And he also had a small family foundation, so he did not need to make money and he could actually seed. You know, we got the seed money we needed. Pretty helpful. Uh, Im immediately. So yeah. we didn't have to write grants. So that was great. Mm -hmm. And Was um, it formed as a nonprofit or as a for-profit? Oh, definitely a nonprofit. Yeah. I'm not sure we were anything for a while, actually. Just operating. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because we also didn't need to raise money. I guess it was, yeah. And I was an independent consultant, so I would just get paid when I did a did a training. Right. So, yeah, so he brought, in a sense, he, he brought the organization and I brought the content. And so we were partners in that and um, we both had a great desire to be helpful uh, to the movement. 
And when you said you the initial kind of group was 25 people, it sounded like roughly. And he he was the one who pulled that together. FOA, friends of Andre. They all knew every one of them was a friend of Andre. And were they leaders in Yeah. Yeah. They they weren't they weren't necessarily executive directors, but they were it was a mix, but they were all they were all activists. kind of and primarily in the environmental movement, because that was sort of where he was located. Yeah. So how did that build over time? There's finding the people that you're going to serve. And did you end up with multiple coaches? And Oh, yeah. yeah. How did the organization yeah. build? I, I would say, you know, the first one was like, wow, <laughs> this really worked. People want more. That's awesome. Let's do another one. Yeah. And let's do another one. Yeah. I would say by the time we'd done like three, we looked just like, okay. This we, is the thing. Yeah, this is the thing. And there's a need for it. People are going to want to do it. It was just the two of us. I mean, there was nobody else. Yeah. I, I think at a certain point, you know, he had someone that kind of an admin assistant would kind of help with registrations and things. He had his own little kind of block of like three or four houses in Berkeley, all populated by activists. And so his kitchen was Rockwood for the first couple of years. I would go out there and sl- I would sleep on the floor of his house and <laughs> we would have meetings. Typical startup. <laughs> it, was, it was a classic startup. Did this become the way you made a living for a while, wholly, or did you were you doing other stuff no. on the side? I was. I, I I always had other things I was doing too. Mm-hmm. I would say the proportion of energy going to Rockwood started raising mm-hmm. over time. We didn't have any trouble filling the second one because people people really did. I'm going to say they liked it. Like people were talking about, my God, this is like life change. It's like we all need to be doing this. So we had we we had 25 emissaries pretty quickly. So we did not have trouble filling them from that point. I would say the shift was. Well, first of all, we're still kind of doing some tinkering with the workshop. I'd say it took me about five trainings. First couple of years, I did all the trainings, but my eye was always like, okay, this is going to need to scale. But I wanted to kind of field test it, like really make sure we had it down right. It was our intention to spread beyond kind of Andre's friends who were all active, mostly in the environmental movement, but they, they all had friends from other movements, so more people started coming in. At a certain point, I decided, okay, now I have to de-robertize it. De-robertize it meant that I have a very particular skill set and a lot of training, and I've been doing I've been doing trainings for 30 years at this point or more. The trainings are always going to be demanding of a pretty high level of skill. They're not cookie-cutter trainings, but I tried to look freshly, okay, if I was not me, if I was someone more like this, what do I need to change? And it was like 15%, 20%, I, I didn't shift them just to make it more easily for other people to step in, mm-hmm. and then reached out and got some new trainers, mostly people I knew. Mm-hmm. Two of whom ended up working, and some of them didn't end up working. The truth is that the the ecosystem of the progressive left is a very particular ecosystem. There's a learning curve, and someone coming from a different system, it's like they're going to get it or they don't get it quickly, and some didn't get it. So what do you think a person who went to one of these trainings took from it in the early days, and is that has that changed over time? The Rockwood did a, um, after 10 years, they hired someone to come and do a a follow-up assessment and and to interview and survey people who'd been through the training. A remarkable number of people, I mean, 60, 70%, that was one of like, one of the more meaningful experiences in their life that was life-changing in some way. So so something stayed with people. There are limits to what you can take from any five-day training. I think the things that were most that lasted most, it's not the emotional experience because there's, there's an emotional, that fades. But there's certain kind of like a, it's like a, a worldview or a meme or an insight that always stays with you. So there are certain insights that are almost predictable. If they didn't know before, people are gonna come out of saying, wow, who I am and how I show up has a lot to do with the results I'm getting. 
and I need to take some of the attention off of thinking I need to learn how to do that thing and they need to do better until like I need to do something different to get better results. A kind of basic sense of self-responsibility and understanding the impact of our emotional state and the way we think on the results. And again, maybe that's obvious to you now, that was not the orientation of the movement in a lot of ways. Well, I remember after I had run my company for six, seven years, it started to become more complex to manage as more people. And I started to have peers, for-profit peers, who were telling me, oh, we went to these entrepreneur forums and we met other entrepreneurs and we support each other and we meet once a month and you should try something like that. And I was highly skeptical of that. It just seemed like not my kind of thing. Uh, but I heard enough times and the complexity of my job was testing me enough that I tried it ultimately. And then going forward from that, tried lots of different things of that vein and and have come around to thinking there's a lot of value out there in learning about how to manage yourself. That people have spent time learning about how to make organizations better and maybe you could learn something. I identified seven practices as I kind of started looking what activists were struggling with, what they needed to learn. And so the notion is, okay, they're not gonna master any of these practices, but if they come out understanding that these practices are important, that puts them on a journey that they can then can kind of continue learning such as the, the practice of, of, of a vision that you want to be thinking about what you want to create rather than what you're reacting against things. We call it resourcefulness. The notion that we almost have a zone, just like an athlete has a zone, there's a, there's a zone at which you're at your best. And then there's a thing called when you get triggered and you're not at your best. <laughs> and basically when you're triggered, everything you do is going to screw up. So we teach people a practice of identifying when you're triggered. That's the critical thing, knowing when you're off. And like, don't try to do things when you're off create space for yourself, shift yourself back from your unresourceful state, back into kind of your zone of leadership, and then act. So true for parenting, or <laughs> <Yes>. marriage, or, <laughs> right, you know, well, almost anytime you're interacting with people. My wife and I teach the same thing in our couples, yeah. If you've never had even that concept, yeah. that's revolutionary. When people can talk about how can something be life-changing, mm -hmm. if you didn't know that, and you come out of there knowing that and committed to learning how to manage yourself, that's huge. So that's what we were hoping for in a five-day training, that they would come out with three or four of these practices, thinking in a way that say, yeah, I'm going to, I got this, I'm not perfect at it, that's fine, I'm a beginner, but I'm going to kind of stay on this track. We wanted to see that happen. Then we wanted to see, very intentionally, we're trying to plant new concepts into the movement as a whole. So let, let me back up a little bit. Yes, so we came to the point where it's like, it's getting ready to scale. We de-robertized it. And then we reached out to get some more trainers. We needed people who already were good trainers. That's a skill set. We wanted to take people who are good trainers, who we thought would have a good resonance with a particular approach of this training. And so fairly quickly, would be able to integrate the, the training, find their own stories and examples to use, which, which turned out to be true. It turned out some of the people we found, they just were right for the just sort of the sensibilities of an activist uh, community, and some just weren't, and we found that out pretty quickly. But we ended up with like a couple of really great trainers soon. Moving back a little bit, we were excited by what we saw in these five-day Art of Leadership trainings, and the appetite was there. There were several things we wanted to do. We wanted to change the ecosystem. We wanted to, these four things that we kind of identified, it's like, how can we impact 
thousands and thousands of people mm -hmm. that actually these will start to become normative expectations and behaviors in this whole ecosystem. progressive ecosystem yeah pretty pretty crazy idea and so it's not an infinite ecosystem it's not that big if you're talking about the leaders of organizations yeah you can well yeah. you know that's that's the one thing i learned one of the things I learned doing the corporate work for that period of those four years, you know, we were doing interventions into an ecosystem with 100,000 people on all continents. We were training in six different languages. So this was in a certain way less ambitious. It was pretty or ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, I have to say, it wasn't like I told a lot of people what I thought we were trying to do because yeah. it was sound crazy. But that was your vision. Yeah, that was yeah. my vision. And, and it was and, and it was Andre's too. With the benefit of hindsight, now when you look back on it, yeah. how how much do you think it took? It, first of all, visions have to be transient to strategy. Yeah. I actually sat down with the size of this ecosystem and it's like what would it take to make the shift that I would love to see? Just create a series of strategies and try to do all of them. Mm -hmm. The first was the trainings. That's a critical mass strategy. Can we train thousands and thousands of leaders in this just to kind of like put seeds out and get get a kind of a get the system kind of oriented in this direction? But the second thing was is it's an, it's an influencer strategy. If we can reach the top leaders in the different kind of social change movements, their megaphones are large. So training one of them will have a, a much broader impact. So very, very systematically, I'm not embarrassed about it, we said, how do we penetrate each of the, we identified about 12 social change movements. These people are busy, man, to get the head of a major organization to want to commit five days, that's a lot. Yeah. So we would use the people that knew our work and experienced it, we'd say, who are the key influences in your movement? It's sales. Yeah, and it was very, very conscious. We went to each system yeah. and found allies there. We'd been to our work. Uh, it took a while sometimes to get like the number one leader. Sometimes they'd want to send a deputy first. Yeah. Environmental, labor. Uh, you got it. Just w women's, through. W w women's, yep. LGBT, yep. uh, each of the sectors. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, we got into the organizing world right away. We got a lot of early adapters there. Mm -hmm. But all it took was a couple early adapters. And they, they would be our missionaries. They would go out and say, I know it sounds like a lot of days. I know they're going to ask you to do crazy things. It's going to help you. Believe me, it helped me. It took about four years before we were regularly starting to attract kind of more top leaders in most of the movements. My experience is whenever you have something like this, it's kind of a moment in time in society and there's other people doing it too. Yes. What, uh, what were the other organizations that were out there or people doing this? Oh, I tell you, well, same? that was one of our strategies. Yeah. So one of our strategies was we want to see the change happen. We don't want to try to own it or bring, like we didn't want to try to be- like, We don't have to have it all. Not the opposite. Yeah. This is, too, this is bigger than we're going to be able to do. We want, in fact, we first of all, we, any materials I make are always open source. It's like, take it, use it, put it out widely. We always tell people to do that. But also, yes, we were always looking for other people who we thought were doing similar things and then finding them, talking to them. We had a, a group with several other groups like us. To be honest, when we first did it, there was no one doing quite like this. There were people trying to teach meditation. We were going into their world. We were saying what we have to offer is not separate, it's not out here, it's not being a better person, it's not meditating, it's how do you actually be a better leader and make more social change. Yes. And so that got a kind of acceptance very quickly, or some of our brothers and sisters that were kind of teaching meditation didn't quite get the same kind of response. Other groups that started appearing, a generous somatics was a great ally of ours, 
the management centers would love what they do. They, it's a little bit different. So we, but we were always looking for people doing similar work. Mid, is Midwest Training Academy one of those? There are many people who are doing training. Yeah. There weren't so many. So not, not so much leadership. And, and yeah. not so much the inner work. Rockwood's niche was the yeah. inner arts of leadership and how they apply to the outer arts. There were a lot of places that were doing the outer arts who do a little bit of the inner arts, although over time, they started bringing much more of that in. But, but that was very much our job was not to try to own everything, to try to plant as many seeds and support other groups doing it and also collaborate very like, what can you do? How can we do that together? Would people come back? Was there a second course or, or yeah, was it? We'll, oh, we'll, yeah. we'll talk about that. What was happening was we all started doing the other strategies. So the key influencer strategy was getting leaders to come to the five day, but there are limits in what you can get in five days. Yes, you get some of these kind of key insights, you know, the high wears off, that's fine. But, you know, really, we wanted to start training people who could embrace it enough that they could take it back and start to bring it to their organizations. So we formed the first year-long training. I think that was about year three or year, year four, maybe. So someone actually would spend a year at Rockwood. Yes, and it was intense. That's a, it quite was, a life commitment. It was three five-day retreats, peer coaching, two coaching sessions with me in between, um, daily practices. They'd get an email every day with something to do mm -hmm. so they could actually practice real-time in their leadership what they're learning in a retreat. And it was over nine months. The first, it was hard to get people to do it. and But we were very conscious of trying to, again, trying to get, okay, we actually want key leaders coming in who could influence a lot of people and have the capacity to kind of take it back. To, so within a couple of years, though, we were flooded. We can pick and choose. And yes, it became, honestly, it became a go-to place. If you want to be a top leader in the movement, go to Rockwood. It was great. We would form our cohorts very consciously. We would literally have, okay, we want make sure we have at least one from the women's movement, one GLTB. We want two organizers. We want two environments. You know, we had, we had a kind of a profile. I, I noticed when you apply now, you have certain things about balancing it racially and oh, yeah. things like that. I mean, it took us a little while to get there. You know, okay, uh, Andre and I, we are white men. I would say the first couple of years, our trains were probably typically two thirds white. And about, I don't know what year, we, we, but not that long, 45 years into it, we were like, okay. And this was before it was demanded of us. I feel good about that. It's like, we did not do this under any pressure, like saying, okay, we need to be relevant to a wider group of people that we are, and uh, we, need to we need to attend to that. And so we reached out and found four trainers of color that had the kind of right skill background. We invited them to come be with us. They'd all been to the training. It was three or four, I can't remember now. I, I do remember the first meeting. We, we invited them to spend a weekend together. It was Andre and I and two other trainers and these three trainers of color. And we're like five minutes into the meeting. And it was, it was a great moment. They said, Let, let's stop for a moment. They said, look, we want to understand what you're wanting from us. And there are two options here. First, we want to say, we love this training. We think this is exactly what our world needs, what, what our people need. But there are two ways to go here. One is, hey, you want to have some people of color for diversity? We'll do that. The other option is, like, you want us like partners, in which case, the training's going to need to change somewhat. N not the basics of it. We're from different communities, and this training has to feel relevant mm -hmm. to our communities. It's going to take some work. And what are you in for? No pressure. We will do that. We will take the training just as it is. Mm -hmm. But there's another option here. And um, yeah, Andrew and I said yes on the spot. 
<laughs> without knowing exactly what that is. We'll take number two. And yeah, we spent that weekend and some more time taking the training, pulling it apart. And again, it wasn't it wasn't the guts of it. It was the sense, the framing of it, the sensitivity to what it means to be coming from a marginalized background, uh, what this would sound like. Um, some shifting a little bit of the exercises, but we put it all together. The training was really much better shape to do what it needed to do. And then, yeah, as an organization, um, yeah, so Akaya was one of our trainers. There was a process by which you replaced Andre. How big of an organization did it grow into? I don't know. I went to talk to the staff the other day, and there were like 25 people on the call. I was like, holy shit, yeah. <laughs> who are all these people? I would say right now it's probably about 60 70% people uh, by puck. And how many people have been through Ten, the, eight, the eight, short trainings? Eight or 9,000, I think. And how many through a year? Well, what happened is the the year-long mushroom. So the year-long I created was called the National Year-Long. And that really is for kind of like key, key leaders in the movement. And then they started doing fellowships where they took the same model, exactly the same model, and doing it for LGTP leaders in California, doing it for labor leaders. I think they're running four or five of those a year. Uh, hun hundreds of people have been, I mean. I, I recently saw a progressive leader who I've had on my podcast and know a little bit post on LinkedIn. I'm considering doing the Rockwood uh, training. <laughs> what do you guys think? If you were the person responding to a posting like that, why should someone go through this? Well, I'm a funny enroller. I always caution people a little bit. I tell them what I think the opportunity is and I let them know what I think is going to be, they're going to need to want to do. Mm -hmm. I, I really, for me, it's like informed consent. Really. This would be good for you if. Well, just to be aware of what's going to ask of you, it, mm -hmm. it, it, so, you're not, so you're not surprised. Yeah. The opportunity is uh, two things. There is an art to leading. That's why, that's, why call, that's why I call it the art of leadership. It's an art and skill to, to leadership. And most of us have never had the good fortune to get the kind of training. And this is a training that's been field tested with your peers for 20 years now. Yeah. It's really good at training you in how to be a better leader. The other thing is, is you're going to get to have a deep experience with a community of peers. And you'll form many relationships outside your network and outside your zone. And uh, you'll learn a lot from other people. You'll learn as much from the other people he's learned from the, what, what's in the training. And the cautionary note is, this is not like a, a skill training where it's sort of like just things you kind of learn with your head. This is very, very personal, sometimes very emotional and requires, it's a different kind of vulnerability you would ever expect to see in a, in a kind of a meeting, in a political meeting or a, a business meeting. And that's not everyone's cup of tea. That's where the learning comes from, but it's going to ask that of you. And so it's important that you would understand that. As you were overseeing this for quite a number of years, how are you changing? Well, this was my fourth attempt to create something like this. And everyone should be glad that was my fourth attempt and I was in my 50s. The others weren't failures. But um, what I saw in the corporate one, for instance, where was I poured my life force into it. And while my life force was into it, things just flourished. And then when I withdrew, it was like air went out of a balloon. When I was younger, I just needed to, you know, like do my own thing and be important and be the center of things. I had to work some of that stuff out. I think I'd worked enough of it out by the time to go, oh, I would bless everyone's good fortune. The need was less on me to prove anything. And so from the beginning, I was thinking about 
beginning to think about how do I do something that's not focused on me mm-hmm. and that actually supports other people to be out front and to do things. And I would say that was my intention. And I would say my learning increased over that period of time. One focus of the league was definitely around race. <coughs> I was innocent or clueless. You know, I was just not, it wasn't on my radar. I didn't, you know, I, I would be the first thing I would, what I would think about race. I love everybody. Okay. You know, so it's, and then, you know, not that long into this journey, um, uh, someone who'd been to one of my trainings came up to me at the end of a training. And, you know, when someone looks at you, it's just like, they're just looking right into, and it was just, I felt nothing but love coming towards me, but being, really being seen. Um, it's a black woman. Turns out she's done quite a wonderful bit of work in the world herself. Um, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. Do you know her? I don't know her. Well, you should know her, and uh, everyone should know her. She's a Buddhist priest in her in her lineage, but a deep activist. And she has really created her own set of teachings, very much like Rockwood, uh, with a you know more of a Buddhist orientation, but very racially strong and uh, great. Does great work. She came up to me. She was not quite out in the world. This was quite a few years ago, and she looked at me. Just kind of said, "You know, this work that you have. It's like my we could my people. We we could really." use this. And what she was saying to me is like, would you help? Would you be willing to join us? I don't know what the word she would, but it was the opposite of feeling called out. It wasn't anything about that. It was like, it was very, I mean, I feel emotional. Yeah. And I'm feeling emotional. I speak it. I felt like in that moment, what I felt was that there was a a world and a community of people that I'd been disconnected to. And I was being invited to, to join something. I felt like there was an opportunity for me to be part of a larger circle of love. That's the best I could say it. Because like, yes. I didn't have to think about it. It was just the yes was there. <laughs> that was the easy part. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't hard. It was, you know, it's just like when you when you so don't know, you don't know. And so the assumption that people were like me in some way had the same kind of advantages that I had. I mean, I knew that intellectually, but... I just had to be in learning mode. And again, I had an easy ride. <laughs> it's, it's kind of tough out there these days sometimes. It wasn't like that. I just felt like people showed up happy to help teach me when I would screw up. Screw up means like I, you know, just, I wasn't aware that what I was saying didn't feel good. Someone always came and told me, and I was so appreciative of that. And uh, I called it a learning curve. I felt like <laughs> it felt like a straight vertical climb for about three years. I had so much to learn. I'd say that's, that was probably the area of biggest learning. The actual teaching work and what I do, I, I've been doing it a long time. So it was not, that was not where the learning was. The learning was, what does it mean to be in a wider community and to be partnering with people that are, that are different than me and how to do that from love and respect, but also there was some knowledge I actually had to learn. And the other thing was, yes, every step of the way, how to lead in a way that left people more autonomously empowered and not dependent on me and not looking towards me. You mentioned when you were talking about some of your early clients in the space, how there was a problem of a lot of commitment, but not necessarily a lot of impact because people weren't working in the best way that they could and that that was what you're attacking. When you look at the progressive ecosystem now, 
after all of the efforts of Rockwood and other organizations, what do you see out there? Are the problems the same? <laughs> are, are, have we made progress? How are we doing? Okay. I want to go back just to the strategy a little bit. I think it's useful to see for people to see what does it take to try to even to try to change the social change movement. Yeah. It was the, the the critical mass strategy. It was the key influencer strategy. But as you move ahead with any strategic process, you can see the new need emerge. Now there were all kinds of organizations and the leaders who wanted to bring this work in. Okay, Rockwood had a certain number of trainers. Okay, so then Jody Tonita and I created the social transformation project. And that was, in a sense, to kind of do what Rockwood had this thing that it does. It does trainings. What else was needed? We trained about 175 consultants and coaches who were committed to serving the sector in the same practices and principles as Rockwood, not connected with Rockwood, so that when someone went through Rockwood and wanted to bring this back to their organization, here, here are 175 people that have been trained in that. Then the next thing was materials. We created about 110 tools and just made them widely available. Everyone, please replicate them, use them. Everything is, is is open source, and then that networking with other other groups and trying to support other groups. Those were the kind of follow up strategies that were critical towards this going out widely. Yes, and now you're asking me, well, did it work or not? <laughs> um, <laughs> That's the problem. Measuring things like that is very difficult. I do have things to say about this. Maybe this is a fair analogy. I'm not sure it is. You know, if you ask. Someone growing up now as a person of color who's experienced racism and experienced that, you know, what the structures are still like in this country. How's it going? Plenty to be upset about. Sometimes you'll talk to their elders and it's like, yes. Maybe it was worse. Absolutely. <laughs> this is what it was like 20 years ago. Yeah. And from that perspective, yeah, there's, there's been progress around race. I mean, it's, it's unbearable now but there has been progress that's probably the analogy i'd use here i mean you're, you're asking me at a particularly hard time since october 7th in our movement oh it's so painful you know we're, we, we're split we're split yeah, yeah. We're, sp we're split it's almost like competing trauma there's, there's a lot of trauma yeah. an understandable trauma going on and, and it splits so it's like competing traumas and there's almost no dialogue or capacity to kind of mutually support, and it's very painful, very, very hard. So, yeah, we're seeing the movement at its worst right now. And at a time when the, the looming Trump return is what we really ought to have our eye on. Yes. And stopping which that. Is, which is, I, I don't, it's funny. I get frustrated. I don't fault anybody. It's like, you know, we have cousins in you know in Israel who are completely traumatized from the police who've been total peace activists their entire lives who are right now just wanting to kill or be killed. My son has um, eight students in, in in Gaza that he's been mentoring and writing. Two of them have already been killed. So it's in our own family where we have to hold that tension. And I understand. I, I understand what the traumas are on both sides, and it's very hard. So I'm going to have to put the last weeks aside and, and answer your question. Well, my question is more about how are we, how are our leaders prepared to deal with things like this? <laughs> Better than they were. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm going to try to answer it in two, yes. in two ways. I am going to say, so if you'd asked me before October 7th. My birthday. It's your birthday. <laughs> Blessings. <laughs> Look, there's plenty of toxicity in our movement. 
Their leaders are, are having trouble leading their organizations. There's plenty of plenty of challenges going on. Um, generational challenges. Yeah, yeah, generational yeah. challenges. Yeah. Just um, are, are just like you were talking about in your early days, the old left and the new left, or whatever yeah. left. We have always had these challenges of factionalization that mm -hmm. that are part of what medicine is needed to run an organization. Yeah. How do you? How do you get people aligned that are mad at each other? I, I believe, and people may or may not agree, that the four things we set out to try to influence are better than they were. People talk about things like vision and mission and actually try to do that in a way they didn't 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. I believe that the understanding of the need for collaboration and that certain skills are better than they were back then. I believe there's actually a generation of leaders that actually is moderately well equipped in a way they were 20 years ago. I, there's a lot of people working at it. Yeah, that they, they, they are things, much more enlightened. These right? things weren't even on the on the. They weren't even talked about. Yeah, this thing about the notion that management takes certain things and you know certain practices, considerable change mm -hmm. than there were. The last thing about sustainability, yeah, it's a conversation. People no, people no longer compete in the same way, like, oh, I'm more stressed than you. It's better or it's worse, but there are all kinds of practices that didn't exist. And it's a different conversation. But it's very interesting because it's also kind of bottom up because you see young people advocating for a less toxic yeah. workplace and pushing management or leadership to As they make should. changes. Yeah. As they should. Yeah. So, Yes, because I'm still kind of pretty involved in the work. I'm having to deal with the toxicity and things. So sometimes like, oh, it's still so hard. Yeah. <laughs> but then if I step back and I actually talk to people and look look on a 20 things like, no, there's been movement in the last 20 years. And yes, I, I, if I look at the impact of Rockwood and our sister organizations, yeah, there's, but there's been some real change. There's the within the progressive movement change. And then there's just the change in the country, which is far more polarized and far more toxic on many dimensions, not all, that necessarily affects everybody who's trying to operate and try to make the world better. Yeah, it does. I, I, I absolutely believe that. You know, we all have our own theories. I'm trying to look at the world. I believe that there's a level of fear that's rising globally. And a lot of it's on purpose. It's being pushed to rise in many places. It's, 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 it's circular. It's, it's, there's an appetite for it. This is my own little theory. If you look at the research of what happens to rising temperatures on mammals in the classroom, in, you know, in the laboratory, we have these animal instincts that kind of run way below any kind of any rational thing. There, there is stress in our systems going on, and, and I, I do think there's impact from just the way like animals kind of almost sense kind of like changes happening. There's fire somewhere. There's a hurricane coming. There, there are floods. You could imagine a lot of mechanisms where that could be true. People are stressed about it as an idea. People might, in many places, are experiencing actual temperature change and more disasters. So there's that, lots that, of ways. Also, so I think that and the stress of technology and the rapid technological yeah. change, social media, and the and social media. So I think those factors are kind of bubbling under humanity, and I think it's creating fear and anxiety. And people do different things when they're anxious. Some people go into kind of like hyperfixit mode. Some people go into kind of withdrawal. I'm going to find some place to hide from it. And a lot of people go towards this kind of tribalism. Circle the wagons up. Who's promising me they can take care of me and an easy answer for it?
Um, and I think it's happening globally. I work globally. It's, it's the same things are happening around the globe. My understanding is that you have left Rockwood and started your own practice. Is that correct? Mm, I never stopped my own practice. I would say at its height, I was probably doing about half my time okay. in Rockwood. But are you still working as a trainer for Rockwood? Yeah, well, no and yes. But I notice I'm still listed as a trainer on the website. Are you? <laughs> I adore Darlene. I think it's incredibly. So we're very close. We talk regularly. So I'm actually starting to do some programs again. I'm not kind of doing public trainings anymore, but I've started doing these daily practices. We used to, I created these daily practices to support people in year-long trainings. It's this cool thing where you get somebody every day in an email, like what I can do today to practice in my work today, the kind of practice, the principle we're working on. So we're now experimenting successfully with taking it. You don't, so you don't have to be in a year-long training. You can come to a webinar and then kind of go through the self-guided course that teaches you some of the Rockwood curriculum. So I've started doing that with Rockwood, and mostly for their alumni. I've done two of them. We had 200 to the first one, 500 to the second one, and I am looking at putting those out into the general into the general world. So so I, I still partner with Rockwood. I adore Rockwood. I support every way I can. I'm still on the website as a trainer and still doing some things. You have the option whether or not to take someone on as a coaching client. What makes you accept someone versus turn them away and Point them to someone maybe you think is a better fit. Seventy-five. You're seventy-five. Part of it. So some of it's capacity, but you're still choosing among people, right? I'm coaching about regularly, something about twenty-five people. That's a lot. Yes, but the people I work with, I guess, one of the criteria, they are really self-reliant. They they are good, strong leaders mm -hmm. and self-reliant. They don't need me to be accountability for them. They don't need to check in on them. In an hour they will get enough that it will take them mostly three to four weeks or more to implement mm -hmm. the things that we do. Because they're also serious. You see them, they're like taking notes, scrambling, writing down things, coming down. Their to-do list of sometimes substantive things is large, so they don't need more than once every four or five weeks. That's why I can do 25. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, someone's in a crisis point, and I'll see them more regularly. There's some unknown large number of people in the world who I know and love who just call me, and I charge them or don't charge them. Yeah, so there's probably any given you another 25 people or so that I might have some kind of contact with. But the, of the regulars, I have a couple going back 20 and 25 years at this point. I mean, I've, I, they, they were student activists and now they're running one of our largest organizations. In terms of people regularly I work with, they're virtually always running some very large, impactful organization, except when they're not. Because sometimes someone's doing something and and they're in between or or they're they they used to do it and now they're at a university or something. <laughs> well, usually they take a break from coaching during that too. No, I have to say I've worked intuitively my whole life, and sometimes people show up and I know I'm supposed to work with them, and it, it's not logical. Generally speaking, you know, I want to be able to see a through line that that millions of people will be impacted. You know, so most of them are running some, you know, but someone's the number two or three person in a country, you know, politically, you know, so they, they have a different kind of impact. I've started working a, a few, just a bit, because I, I was working like 100% with progressive activists. I'm working with a few people on the solution side, particularly people who are entrepreneurs doing something potentially um, a game changing around climate. So that's been kind of fun doing a little bit of that too. I, I have a good network of coaches. I get a lot of requests, a lot, a lot of requests. And I spend 
too much time probably trying to kind of make a good match for them with some of the people that I that I know or have mentored. So I do a lot of that, and I'm, I'm always ha- I'm happy to do that. What should I have asked you that I haven't asked you? I'd like to talk about how to deal with these times. Robert, how should we deal with these times? <laughs> if you're a listener asking this question because you're feeling challenged, you should know you're in good company. That's always important to know. I feel challenged. <laughs> yeah. What comes in, in the news, first of all, is not a balance of what's going on in the world because what, what, what makes the news is what's wrong. I mean, it's, there are so many things going wrong. I'm older than a lot of the people listening to you will be. Um, I'll talk right to you folks out there. It's like, I don't have the same kind of youthful enthusiasm and belief in a positive future that I used to have. When I we started back when in my student activist days, um, I believed there was going to be a political revolution in the country within a few years. You had to either be in Cambridge, Ann Arbor, or Berkeley, I think, to have the particular fantasy. <laughs> and then after that, I started thinking there's be some kind of consciousness revolution. But I always believed some of the things were, were getting better. Mm-hmm. And that my passionate commitment to try to make things better were fueled by that optimism. Mm-hmm. It got me up every morning. It's like, we can do this. We can do this together. Whatever that it was, you know. I don't think it's just aging. The social indicators, they're moving in bad directions right now. Um, you'd have to be ignorant to not, to not see that. Humanity's never actually faced something like climate change, and we're not doing well. It, it could be the opportunity that we would come together because it affects all of us, but you know we're not doing all that well with that. We're going to see impact from oh, that. We and, are. Uh, it makes me very sad looking at my grandchildren. I get you know, fearful for the future. And right now, the kind of fear we were just speaking about it's driving people towards increased polarization and autocracy is on the rise many places in the world. Democracy doesn't thrive so well in that kind of kind of crisis. And so I know many people are dealing with their version of that. How do we find a kind of stability and place to live from and to work from? That's everything we've tried to teach in Rockwood, which is from a balanced place with a quality of presence, with a quality of clarity, with a quality of heart, of caring, of compassion. For myself, I have to say, I'm, I'm appreciative of the fact that I learned some things before I've been in this situation, which have helped me. Um, I feel like we have to do the work from a different place then. Maybe things are going to be not good. Well, they're going to be less not good if we don't give what we can to make them good. There's so much need that needs to be done. I mean, it makes me think of like when the Iron Curtain came down over Eastern Europe after World War II, and those countries were under the Soviet system, and it was pretty a pretty dark time comparatively. That could come to this country under Trump and whoever succeeds him, if that were the way that we chose as a country, and we would have to have a resistance from underground like they did there. Sure, and, and that might not happen exactly. And, and most, what I'm hopeful is that people that you coach and people that are working hard to avert that will stave this off, you know, and turn us back to positivity. I would hope so, and it may be in It may between. be something in between. You know, my wife, her friend asked me, what are you gonna do if Trump wins? Well, exactly what I'm doing today. Fight, yep. yeah, keep I, fighting. I, yeah. Uh, do, and, it's not the but, end. But, but, and in fact, that would be a huge mistake to stop fighting. <laughs> right. But one of the key things is fear. You got to get away from that. Yeah. Fear Fear is a killer. And, and you know, the fear, our, our mind is spinning out the future in, in unhealthy ways. It's 
There's so much fear. And so what the world needs actually is people that are radiating not fear, but not wild, blind optimism. Mm -hmm. It's just a clarity Determination. of Determination. And, and a clarity of presence and being clear, knowing what's yours to do. Yeah, there are a lot of things I can't do anything about. There are a few things I can do something about. And so I'm, I'm taking all that energy and bringing it here to do the things I can actually do. Is there something on that line of thinking that you find yourself repeating to your clients? Like, this is, this is my refrain these days. There's certain things that predictably help with fear. One is to keep coming back to the present. You talked about that right at the beginning. You kind of mentioned presence. It's like, wait a minute, what's happening right now? Wait a minute, we're not living in a fascist dictatorship right now. Like, like right now, fear is not usually in the present. Anxiety is, it's either anxiety about the future or it's kind of going back into the past somehow and, and, and sinking into it. But in the present, here, fear is not here. There's certain body practices, body mind practices, meditation, all those things are, they actually do help because they, what they do is they take you, your mind starts generating fearful thoughts, goes into your body, your body starts producing anxiety symptoms, which drive the fearful thoughts, and you kind of go into a cycle. So, yeah, certainly with myself, with my kids, with my people I work with, it's like when I see that anxiety is being raised, like, wait, okay, come here. No saber-tithed tiber, right? You're not being attacked right here. Let's calm the body-mind. Breathing, practice, whatever you do, it's like, oh, it's like that's like that kind of waking up. Yeah. You're, waking, you're waking up out of a fearful dream. So I always ask myself, if I'm, is there anything I need to be doing right now? Oh, if there is, let's do that. It's like fear generation that kind of goes out of control with the body-mind. So yeah, that's always a wholesome thing to do. The other thing is get connected. There's an instinct to kind of reach out to each other when we're afraid. That's a good thing to do. Not to keep spinning your worst fat, like don't have a three-hour Trump session of all the horrible things you can do, but to connect, to actually connect human to human. Again, we're herd animals. There's a comfort in that, the good kind of comfort. So know what your lane is, know what you're being called to, and, and give yourself to that. Learn your body-mind body, practices. Don't indulge, and, and don't lower your news consumption also. You don't need four hours a day of fearful things coming into you. You know, stay stay attentive. Things you need to learn, but it's like take care of yourself. Reach out, be connected. Know what the contribution you have to make it, and then you have to trust that the other three billion people are doing their piece of it because you can't do it for everybody else. Yeah. Really wonderful to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? No, feels good. Thank you. That was Robert. He's at rockwoodleadership.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.